Hello, and happy opening day from Fangraphs Audio. This is episode 969, and we have a pair of great interviews for you today to ring in the 2022 season. First up, David Lorelow welcomes Matt Bowman, right-handed reliever formerly of the Cardinals and Reds, who is now in the Yankees system. Matt tells us about how he has evolved as a pitcher and as a student of pitching over his career, including since he first spoke with David many years ago. We also hear about the memory of his first opening day on a major league roster, rehabbing from Tommy John surgery, talking to Amir Garrett about his slider, and how impressed he is by his current team's pitching philosophy and development. I'd say the entire Yankees organization is more literate in basically pitch analytics than any organization I've been with. Even the big leaguers understand what makes them good and are open to attempting new things. You know, it's no secret that the Yankees have this whirly slider, as they call it, and they will, at every single level, there seems to be an openness, including at the big league level, to attempting to use that slider. After that, Jay Jaffe welcomes longtime baseball writer and friend Craig Calcaterra. Craig wrote a book that was just released, and it's called Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game. Jay knows what it's like to write a baseball book, and he talks to Craig about the experience and how it came to be. The pair discuss how our fandom can certainly change and evolve over time, especially as we do as people, and how some folks can take their fandom to unhealthy places. Jay and Craig also talk about the conflict of having careers in the sports industry while criticizing it, and how we have to decide our own ethical boundaries as fans. Everybody can live with what they can live with. There is no ethical consumption under sports, just as there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, right? I mean, everybody's got problems. No matter who you root for, that team has employed a son of a at one point. Their owner is probably involved in something that's gross. The team has probably partnered up with some company that is questionably ethical. There is no way to be perfect, and you're going to exhaust yourself if you try. But what you can do is you can decide what you can live with and what you can't live with. And... I think everybody's going to have a different answer about that, and that's okay. But before we get to these great segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is not only the place for you to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also scoop up an ad-free membership for yourself or as a gift for a friend. And that is the best way to not only browse the site, but also to help us keep doing everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show and your opening day. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Matt Bowman, 30-year-old right-hander, currently in the New York Yankees organization. Matt, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, thank you for having me. We saw each other for, I think it was about 30 seconds in the Yankees clubhouse uh, a few weeks ago. I happened to see you just as they were closing the clubhouse and ushering out reporters. So, you know, I didn't get a chance to talk pitching with you, and we are going to talk pitching definitely today. Absolutely. I'm, I'm excited. Uh, it's, it's all I seem to be able to do these days. <laughs> Is to talk pitching, right? Yeah, yeah. Actually, let, let's start with that. You are coming off of Tommy John surgery, which I think is actually a year or two old, but you are actually not pitching right now. Yeah. So, you know, the recovery from TJ has gone quite well. Uh, the Yankees signed me to a two-year minor league deal. I spent all of last year rehabbing in Tampa basically completed the process. And then um, this offseason ramped up for the season as, you know, not a rehab person and then just had a minor thing come up, which I guess uh, sometimes can happen when you get to a certain level of intensity coming back from TJ. It's kind of hard to simulate the, you know, ups and downs in terms of, you know, a couple innings at a time, bouncing back quickly. And then, you know, the timing of it just wasn't great for an abbreviated big league spring training, but got plenty of work in uh, on the minor league side before big league spring training started. And for my first non-health related question, Matt, I'm going to go with something that I actually asked you in a summer of 2017 interview back when you were with the Cardinals, which is, what have you been thinking about lately? Of late, and lately is pretty loosely defined, but probably the past year and a half while I've been uh, rehabbing because I'm unfortunately not able to, you know, uh, pitch myself. I've been taking kind of a, I wouldn't say a deep dive, but a broad dive into, you know, what makes pitchers good right now. I, I think the game, especially the from the pitching end, is really interesting right now. And that game of cat and mouth, the mouse that sort of zigzags back and forth is going more quickly than it ever has, thanks to the technology, 
thanks to the different coaching techniques, what would have taken, you know, before I, I think sort of like five years ago, five to eight years ago, when the Rays were, you know, as you guys coined them, the cult of the high fastball. And it took a lot people a lot of time to uh, to catch up. Um, but now the game, I think, moves extraordinarily quickly. And a lot of teams are have the technology to uh, to come up with their own ideas about about how to collect outs. And uh, that is that is mainly what I think about nowadays is just looking at different organizations and seeing if I can pick up on any um, any broad strokes for what they think uh, works for getting uh, getting guys out. And we should talk about that. But first, I bet you probably have no clue what your answer was when I asked you five years uh, ago what you were thinking about at the time. I'm trying to think. We probably had this conversation when I was in, we were, Cardinals were visiting Fenway. That feels like it might have been right. So what am I thinking about? It, it was definitely not baseball related. When I'm playing baseball, I, I'm not focused on, you know, I don't spend every waking hour thinking about baseball. So I don't know, probably something dumb like a TV show. Actually, Matt, you did say something uh, baseball related. You were trying to figure out why you were not throwing more ground balls, why you were not getting more ground balls, which I thought was interesting because we were starting to segue into a period where you know, the riding fastball really was becoming a thing. Absolutely. That's very interesting. That's sort of the, um, I think in my career, especially there's been this pivot into having all the information you could want at your fingertips uh, has really happened across the league for about in the last five years. And now I know why I wasn't getting ground balls. But back then, obviously, it was a little frustrating. And I think that was sort of the uh, the tail end of the launch angle revolution where people were starting to scoop uh, sinkers a little bit more. And why, Matt, were you not getting ground balls? Honestly, the, the easiest answer is just that my sights were a little high. I think that I had gotten it in my head that horizontal movement in, uh, in a vacuum could lead to ground balls. And it got me away from you know the, the highest correlation uh, variable to ground balls, which is just being down in the zone. Um, so I was sort of sacrificing location, optimal ground ball location for optimal ground ball movement. And I think the priority of that was a little mixed up. Let's jump from that because this might be related somewhat. In uh, March 2020, just before the pandemic shut everything down, you told me that you have always had trouble with breaking balls. I did not ask you at the time to elaborate for whatever reason, but but I will now. Yeah. Um, so I would say that at the time, I my understanding of what made a breaking ball good was limited. Um, you know, there's there's gyro effects on it, there's induced effects on it, and I actually didn't understand exactly what I was doing, and we didn't have high-speed cameras, so I had no idea what made a breaking ball good. Sort of at the time, I didn't really know what made my sinker good, and now that I know, things have improved, but at the time, it was just sort of like, hey, is it going to move? Is it not going to move? I really can't tell you why it would or would not. It just sometimes happens and other times it doesn't. But now I, I have an excellent understanding. And, and I'd actually say now that I'm with the Yankees, I'd say breaking pitches are, I'm not going to call it a specialty, but it is certainly not a weakness anymore. You were with the Reds, another team that's become very analytically savvy with pitching in recent years. You know, when we spoke in, in 2020, did you ever talk to Amir Garrett about the movement profile of his slider? I absolutely did. Um, you know, Amir was always a little bit of an outlier, and I'm sure you all have actually touched on this. I feel like I've read a Fangraphs article on on sort of how Amir is an outlier when it comes to thinking about what makes his slider good. It's you know, as we all know, or some of us know, like it's a it's a gyro slider that isn't necessarily a perfect you know zero zero bullet spin, and it's has a low uh, what should we call it? Has a low spin rate to it. And Amir doesn't really know either. I don't think anyone really knows what makes it good. I, I think it's sort of one of those factors that we can't quantify yet. There's a deception factor, but we all know that uh, that like it isn't a traditional slider that um, that you would think profiles extraordinarily extraordinarily well. But uh, obviously, for the most part, it, it tends to to play very well. No, when I tried to get uh, Amir to talk about it, I got the impression that either he didn't really want to talk about it or maybe he didn't fully understand why it was so good. I'm guessing he probably had a pretty good understanding. To be honest, I, you know, 
not to, hopefully I'm not blowing up anyone's spot, but I actually don't think that we all have an amazing understanding of why it works so well. You know, at the time that I was with the Reds, I would say that even some of the people who you might expect to have answers to that question didn't necessarily have answers to it. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, let's not touch it. And uh, it works because we know that it works and figuring out why it works could end up, uh, you know, you change the ingredients, you get a different, uh, you change the recipe, you get a different result. So maybe, uh, maybe Amir was thinking, hey, I'm just really, I don't really like to think about it because, you know, why mess with success? Speaking of thinking, and we're going to jump back here to something else that you've told me. I believe it was the first time that we ever spoke, which was during your 2016 rookie season with the Cardinals. You said, I might be paraphrasing this a little bit, is you said that when a pitcher is in AAA, he's often thinking, you know, I need to make an adjustment. I need to make an adjustment. And I think from there, you went on to say that baseball is a game of adjustments, you know, the cliche, and but that it can drive you crazy. Did you find yourself trying to figure out, you know, who you were? Yeah, absolutely. Especially, uh, I think, with the Cardinals before I had a good understanding of um, some of the advanced metrics uh, with involved with pitching, I really didn't understand what was making me good. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty standard right-hander that throws low 90s and had a sinker that profiled pretty well and had some outlier qualities, but nothing crazy. And I'd say, without a doubt, if you are someone who tries to do problem solving, really wants to be ahead of the curve when it comes to adjusting before the league adjusts to you, but you have incomplete information, you can sort of drive yourself crazy wondering, like, what makes me good? Like, you know, you look at you look at some standard guys like Araldus Chapman, and uh, you say, okay, he throws it very hard. Or guys like Garrett Cole, who have excellent, like, four-seamer profiles. But with me, it wasn't entirely clear what made me so good. And so at the time, I think I absolutely, I would sort of drive myself crazy being like, okay, how do we get better? Like, is it this area? Is it this area? And, and we really didn't have answers to it. It just sort of worked. Uh, and now, obviously, I, I have more answers to it. And I, I feel very confident in looking under the hood and making adjustments. But sometimes you can adjust in the wrong direction. And it, it takes, you know, a bad outing or two to realize that you've made a mistake. Yeah. Do you feel that you did that at times, adjusted in the wrong direction? I think it's definitely possible. I think that sort of came in off seasons, maybe. Uh, during the season, you just, you don't really try and change too much because things can really go off the rails and you don't want them to while you're in the big leagues. And especially in, you know, for a little bit of my career there, I was in a, in a pretty significant role coming out of the bullpen. And so you're not really trying to make some crazy adjustment in season, but in the off season, absolutely. I, I found that you know, what I mentioned before about horizontal movement correlating with getting ground balls, I prioritize that over just pitching down in the zone. And that's one of the examples where I, you know, I, I moved in the wrong direction and I, I sort of lost sight of what was making me good. So it might not have been the complete wrong move, but it came at the cost of something that I was doing and not realizing what I, you know, pitching down in the zone was much more important than getting a certain movement profile. And you have, unless I'm mistaken, an, an economics degree from Princeton. You definitely have a reputation of being a bit of, of a pitching nerd. And I know that you have told me in the past that you sometimes think too much. Do you think we're reaching a point with data that you don't really need to think so much as you just simply need to study, if that makes sense? Yes, uh, without a doubt. You know, that is that is the ideal scenario for all pitchers is that you can think all you want. But when it comes to, you know, being out on the mound and facing a hitter, it's executing a game plan. And whether that game plan was crafted by you or by the organization, it is definitely an ideal scenario that you're doing less and less and less. And you're just doing exactly what you're told. And whether it's you, you know, a cerebral you doing a scattering report before a game telling you what to do or an organization giving you heat maps saying this is what you should do, I would absolutely say that that's correct. Like it is studying, but it is not uh, going off on your own and uh, trying to figure things out and tinker. And you touched earlier, Matt, on how uh, different teams are approaching pitching and maybe teaching pitching differently. Can you give examples of what you've noticed philosophically? Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the most interesting teams and the teams that, you know, my best understanding or my best guess for why they need to do it are financial constraints like the Rays, uh, the Guardians, 
the brewers to some extent, they sort of have to be ahead of the curve when it comes to pitching philosophy. And I think the Rays maybe have, you know, the strongest reputation for trying to innovate before the league has figured something out. So I would say, I'm trying to think 2020, 2021, the Rays had all these different angles, you know, every pitcher could throw, you know, you create a clock and basically if it was possible to throw a ball, you know, over 90 miles an hour from a certain arm angle, they had that arm angle in the you know, in their bullpen. But then, you know, you sort of see their moves and they get rid of Jose Alvarado, Diego Castillo heads out. Those are two sinker ball guys. Adam Kolarik, who's sort of a low lefty sinker ball guy is out of there. And I think now they're sort of showing that they're pivoting just to straight Z ballers is, you know, what I would call them, like just induced vertical, outlier induced vertical over the top with excellent spin rate and good velocity. And that's not like, that's not, everything that they're doing. There are plenty of other guys, Ryan Thompson, et cetera, but they have sort of moved a little bit away and have pivoted toward these guys who are a little bit more over the top and are inducing a lot of vertical break. And it's it's subtle things like that that I find interesting because it isn't, it's not much like a, a firm or a company where you can keep information quiet until you, you know, release your product. You can always see transactions and you put a product on the field and you can see what they value. And that's what I think makes it so interesting is that now that everyone can see, you can say, okay, what do the Rays seem to value? Well, we can reverse engineer based on their pitching staff, what they seem to value. And perhaps we can either hop on board and say, all right, we'll give that a a look. Or we can look at it from the opposite uh, standpoint and say, okay, what does that mean for our hitters? Like what philosophy do we need our hitters to have if we assume the Rays might be a year or two ahead of a a coming trend? And that, that's like a small example, but I, I think the Rays are, are a pretty easy one because they they tend to really want to be uh, trend setting, it seems, or have very specific ways and that they uh, think that the that pitching can go and be successful. What about your current organization? Yeah, uh, I, I thought about this interview and I was like, how much like proprietary information am I privy to that I should not say? Like, and I think maybe more than average because. I've been here for a long time and I spent a whole year and all I wanted to do was find out like what can make me better, but also, you know, what makes any pitcher better. But I don't think it's, you know, I'll just say this, like, I don't think that it's a secret that some organizations are going to have basically an algorithm that can spit out information about pitch shape and a number of other variables that uh, I think many people are privy to, let's just say like, you know, release points. And it's, it's, it's so many more variables than that, but I, you know, I I don't want to say something I shouldn't say. And so I would say that they are approaching it from, Hey, we have the ability to look across the league and just find out like all the different ways that pitchers can get out and we can acquire anyone. You know, if it happens to be a power sinker ball guy, like Clay Holmes, it's like, Hey, if we tweak his pitch mix and location, we can turn him into, you know, what they turned him into last year, which was an elite reliever. But at the same time, you could have, I'm trying to think, like Wandy Peralta, who, you know, definitely a ground ball guy, but heavy on the changeup, definitely reverse splits. Or Luis Hill, who is someone who, you know, is showing a power fastball. So I would say that the Yankees, and it's true of a few organizations, they're really just looking for guys who get outs. And they can now quantify like, hey, if we make these small tweaks to guys, we can turn this into a, an above average pitcher. And I think they definitely skew a little bit toward the uh, power sinker just because of the parks they have to play in. You know, if you're going to be in Yankee Stadium and the current iteration of baseball definitely values the home run, I think that they are certainly valuing power sinker ball guys, uh, which is probably a little bit of why they've taken a shot on me, which is that I'm, I wouldn't say that my game is power, but it is definitely focused on keeping the ball on ground. And the Yankees very much value analytics and technology, which really most teams do at this point. And you've seen it grow since you've you've come into pro ball. But how much, Matt, have you seen your teammates really adopt an appreciation for that information? Yeah, I find the Yankee, you know, I, a little bit when I was about to sign with an organization and ended up with the Yankees, I had to ask a few people about, hey, what, how do they allocate their resources? How good are they? And the people that I spoke to who had been in the organization, especially the pitchers, said, if you are interested in this stuff, this is the place you should be. So I'd say, you know, the Yankees, I think, are doing it. From my understanding, they've invested heavily on the technology side and the coaching side, as well as, you know, they're trying to do a lot of things very well. But 
they're also, you know, as you can tell, their minor leaguers are churning out some really great pitchers. And I'd say that what the other thing that they've done is as an organizational philosophy, these numbers that their system can spit out for pitch design, um, for value, location values, et cetera, they let the, the players know. They show the players those numbers and say, hey, here's where you rank within the organization. And I think that that philosophy is actually really smart because a lot of times you can see guys who will seethe while sitting in the minor leagues, not really understanding why they're not moving up. But the Yankees, because they trust their system so much, can say, here's the information. And if you'd like to make a change in order to up these numbers and, and make yourself more valuable, absolutely, we're here to help you with that. But this is how we evaluate you. And it's not some black box how we evaluate you. We, we want you to know exactly what you know, can move you up in this organization. So I'd say that the Yankees are doing a great job because you really don't have a choice. You, you know, you're in this organization, they value what they value. I think the way they value it is extraordinarily close to the best available. And the players really don't have any option other than to say, hey, I'm going to try and impress this organization and utilize their resources, but also their internal numbers that, that tell me, you know, exactly how good I am based on, on all these different features of my pitches. So that said, Yankees and otherwise, who are the biggest nerds that you have played with? Biggest nerds I've played with. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Jared Hughes. You know, he's uh, with the Angels organization now as a, I believe his role is as pitching analyst, but I'm not positive. But he was interesting. And he and I spoke quite a bit because we were both sinker ballers. We both like getting ground balls. And, uh, you know, I, I think sinker ballers in many respects, especially ones that are power sinker ballers, were a bit of a dying breed. So he really dove into the numbers and tried to figure out exactly what makes a sinker baller good during a time when, you know, the margin for error got thinner and thinner and thinner. So he's the one who, who comes to mind almost immediately. I'm trying to think of other guys who really, I played with Trevor Bauer for a little bit. And he obviously very much dives into the numbers, pitch design, mechanics, all of the above. And he he will speak to you about mechanics or about pitch design ad nauseum. So he he's definitely up there. And then briefly, I got to speak. I, I'd say the entire Yankees organization is more literate in basically pitch analytics than any organization I've been with. Even the big leaguers understand what makes them good and are open to attempting new things. You know, it's no secret that the Yankees have this whirly slider, as they call it, and they will, at every single level, there seems to be an openness, including at the big league level, to attempting to use that slider. Whirly slider. I don't think I've heard quite it put that way, but I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the phrase that they use. Um, you know, I think the seam shifted wake is, uh, I believe, the coin phrase by Barton Smith, but the Yankees call it whirly due to the way that, that it moves. Whirly bird. Exactly. Yeah, we don't have a lot more time, Matt, but I want to touch on, on a few more things. We're speaking on Tuesday. This podcast will be airing on Thursday, which is, of course, opening day. So what do you remember about your first big league opening day? So it was uh, in Pittsburgh. I had made the team, you know, two or three. As soon as we broke camp, that was the day. The day we were breaking was the day that I found out I had made the team. And we went to Pittsburgh and I was just as nervous as I could possibly be. You know, I was coming out of the Mets system. I was rule five. I was part of the major league rule five draft. It was not clear to me that I belonged in the big leagues. So I was soaking it all in. I loved it. It was as cold as could be. But I was also, you know, nervous being like, holy moly, like I'm going to get into this game. Like it's got to happen at some point and I'll be a big leaguer, but who knows for how long. So, uh, but yeah, you know, that, those were my internal thoughts. My external thoughts were PNC Park has got to be one of the most underrated ballparks uh, in the MLB. It's uh, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal place to play. Agree 100%. And you made your debut, I think, a few days later, which I believe was a clean inning. And uh, uh, apologies up front for bringing this up, but you made your Cardinals home opener debut did not go quite as well? I think that's right. I think it might have been, I think I gave up a home run to Carter. Chris Carter, is that his name? Yes. Big right-hander for the Brewers. Yeah, first batter you faced uh, pitching in St. Louis. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, at that point I had at least like gotten some people out. So I wasn't, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, this isn't for me. But yeah, I certainly remember that. And uh, he, he had some pop to him. I remember he hit that ball out and 
I've given up home runs and I did not expect that ball to go out. But uh, I think that's sort of one of the interesting parts about the big leagues is in the minors, it's like, yeah, guys have pull power. But in the big leagues, you find out guys have opposite field power. And that is something that you don't necessarily see in those lower levels. Uh, but, you know, it, it just wasn't a good pitch. I, I could live with it. I, I looked at it afterwards. And I was like, yeah, like that's exactly one of the where he can hit the ball far. And I threw it right there. And you know, I, I can execute better than that. That was, that was not an issue with me being, uh, being good enough at pitching. That was an, ex, uh, an execution issue, which is something I, I value very highly in myself. And Cardinal fans as a rule are pretty nice. They probably did not boo you for giving up a, a home run. No, they did not. <laughs> I, although I was not exactly going in, in, uh, in big situations that early on, uh, eventually I, I got in there and they were nice then too. But if I had been booed, then I, I would have wondered, uh, if I had the mental fortitude to, uh, to keep going, uh, you know, being that, being it that early in my career. And with, uh, opening day in mind, you and pretty much everybody listening to this podcast will be watching baseball on opening day. But jumping back to Amir Garrett, uh, he told me that he doesn't really watch a lot of baseball when he's not playing. And sometimes he doesn't really even watch a lot when he is. Do you watch a ton of baseball? I watch an enormous amount of baseball, but not necessarily live. As I told you, I find, you know, looking at the different ways that people can get outs to be fascinating, but there are certain there are a lot of different things that have to go right for me to really enjoy it. It has to be a pitcher that I enjoy watching or someone who does something semi-unique. And they also need to be playing in a ballpark that I find the camera angle to be at least agreeable at the, you know, at the very least agreeable. So, you know, the Guardians camera angle, I can't watch it. I can't tell pitch design. I think it's too low. It's too off to the side. The Brewers camera angle is my favorite one. The Brewers and the Rays, I will watch that all the time because you can tell pitch design, but I'm not trying to watch the game as it happens. I'm trying to fast forward through and look at how pitchers are getting outs, attacking hitters, sequencing, etc. So I will I will certainly watch opening day, but then after that I will, you know, log into my MLB.tv account and I will find the matchups that I like and the camera angles that I like and uh, and take it from there. So you watch baseball uh studiously as opposed to casually? Yes, I do. I do find it a little bit, you know, spring training I find a little tedious uh because the camera angle isn't great, but without velocities, it's for me it's really hard to watch. That that like the the pitcher versus hitter dynamic is something that I think makes baseball so unique. Everyone has to cycle in and every if you're going to be on that field at some point you are cycling into that battle. And so, you know, there're plenty of ancillary things that happen, you know, framing pitches, calling pitches, defense, base running, all of those things are important, but what is unlike any other sport is that matchup between a pitcher and a hitter is something that every single player on the field has to do at some point there's no way around it and i think most other sports are are specialized are so specialized that you don't get something that is hey you if you want to play this sport you have to do this one thing so boiling it down to that one battle is always very interesting to me yeah so uh one final question matt how much will you miss pitching when your final bullet has been delivered it's a good question you know uh after this rehab process it feels like maybe less than i would have thought uh, um you know it gets a little tedious at times but i think a lot of that uh will depend on what i what i do afterwards i you know there are a lot of young guys who are in tampa last year and it's obviously a great place to start learning things and i have dabbled in a lot of pitch design and a lot of biomechanics. And sometimes I've realized as a player and as, you know, I guess at this point, someone who has some service time, who can advise some minor league guys, you know, someone who has played before can say the exact same thing as someone in the biomechanics department or a coach. But the closer you are to having played, the better that message lands with players. So I really enjoyed sort of telling guys like, hey, if you want to try this whirly slider, like here are the cues that I've used. Here are the cues that I know other people have used that I've played with. Uh, try this, try this, try this. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'm living vicariously through them, but I did find that, you know, that interaction to be to be very enjoyable and made me less miss pitching a little bit less. But, you know, if I go and work in finance or something like that, I, I might get a little nostalgic about those those days when, when I used to go into the ballpark. 
No, I think finance probably be pretty good for your bank account, but I think maybe not quite as much fun as uh, as baseball. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, I'll have to do some soul searching and, and some of that will probably depend on uh, how many uh, how many days or years from now my last bullet is fired. Yeah, what is coming to mind here, Matt, is uh, I'm wondering if you are baseball's next Brian Bannister or one of baseball's next Brian Bannisters. That's a that's a decent question. I really have not thought a huge amount about what my post playing career looks like. I actually find the innovation side of it really interesting. So, you know, I I'd love to be in a single spot rather than uh, rather than maybe coaching, um, just because this lifestyle can be a little difficult always traveling around. So, you know, not that not that it wouldn't be a privilege to be. Uh, to be able to uh, to coach and do more, but uh, I think that like maybe looking at the innovation of pitching uh, might spark a little more joy or even uh, more something geared toward roster construction. No, for sure. I think you know we could talk pitching, Matt, or at least I could for for hours here. But I think we have pretty much run out of time. So I guess what I will say to you is thank you for coming on to Fangraphs Audio and uh, enjoy opening day. I appreciate it. You too. Thank you for having me. And everybody, thank you for listening. And uh, as I said to Matt, enjoy opening day. Happy opening day. Happy opening day. We, we got here. For over 11 years, Craig Calcaterra digested baseball's daily news for NBC's Hardball Talk, injecting his distinctive and thoughtful blend of analysis and humor into the previous night's results and the day's headlines. In August of 2020, he left that job and founded Cup of Coffee, a daily newsletter and Substack site that continues in the same vein, albeit with larger doses of politics and culture than his previous post permitted. At both stops as well as his previous blog, Scheisterball, a reference to his 11-year stint as a litigation attorney, Calcaterra was prone to meditate on the nature of sports fandom and what he termed the sports industrial complex. Now he has expanded upon those meditations into a 228-page manifesto. Rethinking Fandom, How to Beat the Sports Industrial Complex at Its Own Game was published on Tuesday of this week by Belt Publishing. With me now is Craig Calcaterra. Welcome, Craig. Hey, Jay. How you doing? I'm pretty good. How, how about yourself? About as swell as can be, I guess, under the circumstances. Well, happy publication day. We are talking here on April the 5th. This is the official day of that your book hits the street. Rethinking Fandom from Dalt Publishing. I remember uh, what a big deal it was for publication of my book, uh, the Cooperstown Case Book. It's one of those days you just don't forget. So, yeah, congrats. It's great. They let you into all those cool parties that people who haven't published books don't know about. <laughs> right. <laughs> Did you get the ticket, the, the famous ticket that gets us into all the ball yes, games? I, 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 got to, I got to be on TV even. Oh, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, if you guys haven't published a book, I highly recommend you do it because it really turns you into a giant celebrity. <laughs> yes. Full of riches. <laughs> it, it will goose your bank account like nothing you've ever done before. I get at least a nickel a book and I'm sure we've sold a couple of dozen. So this is going to be some pretty big dealings down at the ice cream place soon. All right. Well, well very good. So, I, you know, I read this book here and, and uh, really enjoyed it. And uh you know, just wanted to talk about it a bit with you and, and, and celebrate the publication of it. I'm thinking now, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember, I have a, I, you, can, you can correct me here. I have this, I have this vague memory of us getting together. And I think it was in Arizona in February, 2017, Emma and I joined my family down there, my parents and my brother and, and, and his uh, daughter. And we, we had uh, our daughter who was six months old and uh, it just so happened we crossed paths with you, who were you were at loose ends, and we went out to a bar uh, for beers one night. And I think that was when you said you had a book idea, but you didn't want to tell us what it was, and neither of us pressed you on it. Was, am, am I right in the chronology, or was it the winter meetings that you said you had the book idea? Now that that sounds right. If you if you know me well, if anybody knows me well, I've been walking around with three beers in me, telling people I've had a book idea for about <laughs> twenty years now. Okay, but. <laughs> but the one I do actually remember this. Yeah, I, I feel like 2017 was right. I did have an idea. It was a version of this that did not come to fruition because for reasons that are still not quite clear to me, NBC decided that they did not want me to write a book. I was working for NBC Sports back then. And I 
got my deal with Belt Publishing, who I ended up publishing with anyway. And I just told NBC that and they said, uh, no, no, we this, no, you can't do that. And I think the reason was because I told them that there was going to be, you know, criticism of what I came to call the sports industrial complex in this book. And NBC Sports is part of the sports industrial complex. Right. And they didn't really much care for that. I'm glad that happened, though, for a couple of reasons. One, the idea was only half-baked. It took me a little while longer to to really come up with what I'm talking about here in this book. I think what that book would have been would be me just complaining about the excesses of sports, which, it, you know, we've all done that. We've written articles about that. We've Some of us have written books about it. But it's also been done by much smarter people than me critiquing <laughs> just what's going on in sports. I, I wanted to go a little deeper, and I ended up, I think, going a little deeper and talk about how what we can do about it. I mean, to the extent we can do anything about it. So yeah, that book idea was there five, six years ago. Um, then it died and then it came back and, you know, maybe maybe some things that die come back or whatever Bruce Springsteen sings about. Yeah, it's it's back in zombie form. No, I can, I can relate to that because the Cooperstown case book had a title and even a subtitle, who's in the Hall of Fame, who should be in and who should pack their plaques. 10 years before it actually hit the street. Oh, wow. And it was, it was, so it was a concept that was floating around, you know, forever. And it was, and it was up to me to figure out how to fill that concept with, you know, something that people would pay money to, to read. So I, I, you know, I know, I know how you feel. And I know that really there's probably no lonelier process in the, in, in the world than writing a book because, buddy, you are on your own. Oh my um, God. You could have all the editors, all, you know, the editors and well-wishers and whatever. But at the end, it's like you're in the middle of this lake, you know, in, in a boat and all you've brought is like a bag of marshmallows. You're like, what, <laughs> how, what the hell am I going to do with this? <laughs> you, you realize how ill-equipped you are for this journey and just how much you just have to rely on, you know, whatever's inside you and whatever guile you have to get through it. Well, what really sucks is what sucks is the lead time because I, I write a lot and I write it all alone and for most of the time I haven't had an editor like at NBC they were they were comically negligent in allowing me just to write whatever I wanted to write and put it on the internet without anybody looking at it first and it was fantastic <laughs> dog fister <laughs> best gig ever they're like eh, he's got a law degree he probably won't libel anybody and <laughs> And so, you know, I've, I've always written alone. I've always, and it's never been a problem. But the problem is, you know, I write things and they immediately leave my brain. I hit post, it goes up and I get feedback, whether it's a commenter saying, hey, Craig, right. that was really dumb. Or, you know, you completely spelled everyone's name wrong, or you might want to rethink this or whatever. And so it, it doesn't feel so risky because, you know, yeah. I can go back and edit in three seconds and it's not a big deal. With this book, I, I finished it in, God, I want to say like April of last year, like a year ago. And then I sent it to someone and then I didn't hear anything for a couple of months. And then someone said, oh, yeah, we have some questions and we'll send you some notes. But of course, by then I didn't remember anything else. People who write books for a living and deal with that sort of like I throw something out into the world and then it's months before I really get to deal with it again are a special kind of crazy. And I salute all of you who write books like for <laughs> a living because that's an insane process. Yeah, I, you know, I've, again, I, I'm like you in that way in that, you know, I publish, you know, five days a week here and I'm used to that instant gratification and instant mm -hmm. criticism and instant feedback and to have something, you know, brewing that's going to take a long time. It, it's just, it's, you have to think about it differently and you have, you certainly have, you know, there are safeguards there, but there's also, it, it, it can be sort of maddening when you're, when you're used to the daily feedback loop. Well, it's also the case I have the attention span of like one of those fighting fish with a little mirror in their little cube <laughs> tank. Yeah, you know, I forget it. I can't think about anything longer than a minute and a half, right? And get it out of my head. And, you know, having to sit with anything for a while. And, and this is a thin book. This is not exactly War and Peace here, right? This is this is a manifesto and a pamphlet right. more than it is a real book. And uh, I can't even imagine people that, you know, research things and drop footnotes and, uh, you know, have New Yorker level editors fact checking them and everything, what they have to deal with, because that's just nuts. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And a manifesto is a good word for this book. I'm glad you used it first year, but uh, um, <laughs> no, it's, you know, it's, it's not a it's not an epithet. I love it. I, I lean into it being a manifesto. Right. Yeah. So you know, this strikes me. It's a you know, on on some level, it's a very personal book that's about your journey. You know, from being a fan with a job outside the sports industrial complex, as you call it, one that you you know came to really dislike. You know, and I think you've you've written about that more. You know, mm -hmm. in your in your other in your other work at NBC Sports and and uh, in Cup of Coffee, you know, than than you do here. To you know, 
suddenly being on the inside of the of the sports industrial complex, working for uh, NBC Sports, and and figuring out you know that you have to approach things differently. You you still you still you know, because you weren't somebody who was showing up to press boxes and clubhouses every day. You didn't really have to completely detach yourself from being a fan the way that you know some of us do or, you know, or, or, or feel like we need to because, you know, we're in the press box. We can't cheer for the, for the team we're watching and most familiar with, but you know, you've, you've chosen, you, you know, this is about you choosing a different path that, that, you know, squares more with your, you know, more adult values at, at this stage of your life. Yeah. I, I, that's, that's a really good way to, to think about it. It's, you know, I've never had to do the faux objectivity thing or real objectivity thing, which a lot of people do. I've, I've remained a fan, but just by virtue of writing about the sport, it sort of changed my brain a little bit. I don't think that's necessary. For, you know, you don't have to become a sports writer and think about baseball all the time in order to change the way you think about the sports you root for. Because I, I remained a fan. I still rooted for teams. And I, you know, even in my writing, it was pretty out front about what I liked and what I didn't like. I've always been able to write kind of whatever I want along those lines. But when you take a step back and you have to look at all 30 teams instead of just one, uh, that changes you a little bit. And then when you take the approach, like I tend to do in my writing, which is be critical of of things, you know, there are a lot of people that can tell you everything about a pitch or everything about uh, roster construction or everything about whatever. I, I don't really do that so much. My value proposition has always been critical of events affecting the sport in sort of a cranky kind of outsider voice. When you do that, you see things differently than when you're just rooting for your hometown team all the time. And over the years, I, I didn't, you know, I was an Atlanta Braves fan for a very, very long time, from the time I was about 11 years old until very, very recently, as I reveal in the book. And I didn't question my my rooting for the Braves when I was just a fan. And then when I started working in the game and you could see how different teams work and how different things work and, and everything, you, your tastes change and your, your views change. And wait, why did they move to Cobb County? And wait, why did they get right. rid of that player that everybody liked? And why in the hell are they doing the tomahawk chop? It just changes the way you look at things. And so as my views of sports changed, I started to think that, you know, it doesn't just have to be me. I think everybody can try to find a different or possibly better way to think about sports that makes them happier makes them enjoy them a little bit more and doesn't just make them miserable like sports often makes people yeah no i think that that's uh, that, that's a good description of it. i think you know I, one thing about being you know inside this this the sports industrial complex is that we don't really get to use sports as an escape the way mm-hmm. you know, somebody who's 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 got another job and doesn't have to you know write two thousand words a day or or whatever uh, about about what he or she is seeing uh, on the field, and you know, come up with a, a unique and useful you know justification for keeping your job uh, right. every day by by thoughtful criticism or or analysis. So you do have to find different ways of of surviving this, and you know, you can't have the ups and downs of a, of, of a fan. I think in, in in that position. But I think I think fans could I think fans could use that too, even if they don't have to do it sure. for, for a living. And and one thing I notice, for example, I. I live in Columbus, Ohio, and I went to Ohio State. And for, you know, over 20 years, I was a hardcore Ohio State fan, as everyone in Columbus, Ohio is. This is, you know, there's no town outside of, you know, the Deep South that is crazier about a college sports team than Columbus is about Ohio State football. And um, it's not an escape for a lot of people. They, they say, they think it is. A lot of them think it is. They think it's their pastime. It's their hobby. Oh, go Bucks. But it, it turns out to not be escape. If anything, it's like a trap or it's like a misery pit for so many people. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the expectations are so high. It's not just that we expect the Buckeyes to win every game. We expect them to win by 27 every game. Right. And people like literally are gloomy and miserable and just crappy people for several days if they didn't beat Akron by 47 and if they you know didn't beat Michigan every year. And I just looked at that a few years ago as as a Buckeyes fan, and I was like, "Wait, this is supposed to be fun. Sports are supposed to be enjoyable. How do we how do we get to a point where we're consuming sports in a way that enhances our lives and gives us enjoyment, as opposed to making us just shitty?" Yeah, I think you know. Look, I live in New York. I you know I I've I've followed I've followed and I've covered the Yankees, and you know there's a certain subset of Yankees fans for whom you know they view if. That if the the season did you know did not end in a championship, then it is a failure and a and a complete mm. waste of time, which is just a miserable 
fucking existence. I mean, and it's I one the Yankees have actually encouraged. I mean, that yeah. was Steinbrenner well, pushing that oh, as they, his they did. They did for a while. They've kind of backed off that, and now you get like. I don't know, the, like the, the noodly justifications that like Brian Cashman came out with mm. recently, you know, explaining why the Yankees hadn't won the World Series. And well, we were just one game short, but the cheater, <laughs> cheating Astros, which, you know, is a whole other level of ridiculous that like is a separate podcast for another day. But, <laughs> you know, just it just it's funny that the organizational about face in, in, in that regard, if you've seen you know Brian Cashman over the last 25 years. But you know, getting back, getting back to your book and to, and to fandom, I think you know one thing that really strikes me is that you know we know so much more about players and about teams and about what they're up to off the field. You know, we know about their politics, we know what they put in their bodies, how they treat their wives or significant others, and things like that. And we've seen you know these leagues be pressured into taking you know actions to curb some of the bad behavior. And some of that spills over into the way that we view these players, you know, and instead of they're just, you know, stat generating robots or, or, or championship winning machines, that they are these complex human beings. And sometimes they're very distasteful ones that we might prefer not to root for. I know I, I come up against this in the Hall of Fame deliberations and i know that's something that you've largely opted out of oh but i'm familiar with it <laughs> but you're but, but i know you're familiar with it but you know i like, read a really good book on it yeah but you know, when you're you know when you're writing about you know whether it's barry bonds or kurt Schilling, you know you come up you know against the reality that these guys have done some distasteful things and some of them are directly related to the competition of you know on the field and some of them aren't but you know it used to be that Hall of Fame voters were expected to wave off the stuff that wasn't directly relevant on the field. And suddenly, you know, you've got people asking, well, you know, why do I have to vote for somebody who's been credibly accused of domestic violence or, or you know, somebody who I, you know, I, I know cheated or, or something like that. And, you know, it's been interesting to see the way that people have, have addressed that. Or, and I don't know, I, you know, I come up against this now that I'm, you know, have moved from a, from being a virtual voter to an actual one. It's like questioning, like, why am I doing this again? You know, and, and, you know, I wouldn't tell somebody that you have to vote for, for this shithead, you know, especially if it's something that like, I don't know if, if, if there's, if there's a history of like drug abuse or, or domestic violence and, you know, in your family or people, you know, that it'd be tough to look, to look somebody in the eye and say, well, I still had to vote for him because he had the numbers, you know? Right. And, and I think that, you know, when you get back to, to fandom, it's, it's, you know, the way that some people, you know, like you use the, the word tribalism in your book and the way that there's a sort of like tribal defense of people who are wearing, you know, the, the players who are wearing the team colors and you're coming up with, you know, rationalizations and, you know, the, the way that, that people, fans reflexively defend these people who are credibly accused of these things. And I'm just rambling here, but it's, no, just, <laughs> it's I, no I get it. It's, it's hard. It's, it's a difficult, it's, it is, it is hard to, you know, to square being a fan once you, once you know these things, especially if you're inside, you know, if you're in the industry and you hear things that you, you know, that are credible, but that you can't publish. Right. Oh know? yeah. That's and, another one. <laughs> and, and, you know, you just sort of have to bite your towel or whatever, you know, and kind of avoid the subject or, or, work around it but well what i here's here's the thing that i I, i'm getting at one person who hadn't read the book yet because it wasn't really out but i was talking about what i was writing we're like oh you're going to tell us how to be an ethical fan you're going to tell us what's correct as fandom i'm like no i'm not going to do that at all and i and i don't try to do this in the book to tell you what you should root for what you should not root for i really do think that and part of the reason with the with the hall of fame stuff and everything why i checked out of it was because i think ultimately just it just came down to everybody's gut and making an individualized decision and that's fine i think with fandom it's the same way everybody can live with what they can live with there is no ethical consumption under sports just as there is no ethical consumption under capitalism right i mean everybody's got problems no matter who you root for that team has employed a son of a at one point their owner is probably involved in something that's gross the team has probably partnered up with some company that is questionably ethical. There is no way to be perfect, and you're going to exhaust yourself if you try. But what you can do is you can decide what you can live with and what you can't live with. And I think everybody's going to have a different answer about that, and that's okay. I I want people to ultimately enjoy their experience as a sports fan. What I don't want people to do, the last thing I want people to do, is to try to tie themselves into knots to justify bad behavior 
And a great example of this I, I just saw in the last couple of weeks. I you know Again, I'm in Ohio. A lot of Cleveland Browns fans where I live. They just traded for Deshaun Watson, the former quarterback of the Houston Texans, who is uh, now a defendant in 22 sexual assault civil actions. Good Lord, yeah. It is not a he said, she said. It is a he said, 22 she said, I believe the she's. I have an acquaintance, now I'll call him an acquaintance, who has been a Cleveland sports fan of some note for a while, has a bit of an internet profile, but I'm not going to identify them, who is generally on the side of the angels as far as I'm concerned when it comes to ethics and sports and things like that over the years. We tend to agree more than we disagree about all manner of things. Something clicked in his brain, though, when the Browns traded for Deshaun Watson. He's such a big Browns fan that he just turned on a heel and decided that Deshaun Watson did nothing wrong. Actually, what's probably happened is uh, the Houston Texans tried to uh, bring down Watson so they didn't have to pay him. All these suits are contrived. Uh, it's Ugh. racist. It's, uh, I mean, this it's a conspiracy theory level justification for why it's okay to root for Deshaun Watson and the Cleveland Browns. There's something really wrong with that, and I'm I'm good with rooting for a team because your dad did and because you live in that town, and that's just there's some cultural inertia. Sports fandom is irrational. I don't want to take the irrationality out of it because in that irrationality is emotion and love and, and things that we get that are intangible. But on some level, you need to take a step back and ask what the hell you're doing. And if there's a domestic abuser on your team, it's not an acceptable response to say, that's fine because there's a domestic abuser on my rival's team. Right. You know, you, you can just say it. You're not any less of a fan of the Cleveland Browns if you say our quarterback is horrible and I don't like that he's on this team. And it's okay even. I have a whole chapter in here where it's okay, where if it gets to be so much, and it, it's going to take a lot, but if it gets to be so much to where you just don't feel you could watch your team or root for your team in good conscience anymore, you can change. The chapter's called Be a Fairweather Fan. And it's going to piss everybody off who reads it because we've been <laughs> taught, you know, in the, you know, sort of like Bill Simmons school of sports fandom, which everybody has sort of assumed on some level of our generation. We've been taught that that's the worst thing you could possibly be is to be a Fairweather fan. I totally disagree. I think we should be any kind of fan we want that allows us to get enjoyment out of sports. And if rooting for bad actors causes us to not enjoy sports, don't root for them. Root for somebody else. Root for, you know, go root for the Bengals for a while or go root for the Lions, God help you. But you don't have to fall under the orthodoxy of defending your colors no matter what. This isn't war. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. And, and I think the fact that you also kind of push back at the gatekeeping that says, you know, you, that you have to follow these rules, you know, that you have to be this intense, that you have to understand the rules of the game and be able to, you know, write the depth chart from memory or whatever, that, that it's okay to not give a shit about some of that stuff. And, you know, to be a casual fan, to check in only when things are going well. Yeah. I mean, if you're a hardcore fan and you want to like maybe recenter sports in your life or get a little bit more perspective, I, that's what I did with Ohio State football is, you know, I needed to back away a little bit because it was consuming too much of my life and my emotion. You know, I became a casual fan by choice and I only consumed the game. If you're new to a sport, there is nothing that says you have to do that deep dive. I mean, this would cause people to have absolute heart attacks. But say you just moved up to Boston for college or something, and you're enjoying life up there. And uh, hey, I like basketball. I'm going to get into the Celtics. You know what? It's not a violation. It's not going to send you to hell if you don't know who Larry Bird is immediately. I mean, <laughs> right. eventually, eventually you're going to find out. But it's okay. Yeah, it does help. It does help to research the local legends if you're if you're going to be in that. But uh, oh, it'll help you. It'll absolutely help you. But you know what? If you just enjoy watching a basketball game, there's nothing wrong with it. Go to a basketball sure, game. Sure. Say go Celtics, and then just then for the rest of the you know next four days, do what you want to do. Yeah, a couple more things. One, you know, I was I was struck by you know talking when you're talking about being a fair weather fan and and the way you withdrew from college football, especially. I you know I w I used to be a big football fan too, and I kind of withdrew from it mostly the, for some of the same reasons. I didn't have I wasn't as rabid towards any team, but the concussion stuff I mm -hmm. thought was just like I couldn't stomach that anymore. I feel like I'm watching you know people fed directly into a meat grinder. Yeah, you know I'm watching the the accelerated destruction of of human brains. And I can't, I can't not think about that when I when I watch football, and it, it it's sucked most of the joy out of it for me. I watch the Super Bowl, and maybe I watch the conference championship games, so I know who I'm watching in the Super Bowl, and that's like pretty much it. 
But, you know, and then I, I found myself, I get really into the Winter Olympics because I grew up skiing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, the IOC is just about as reprehensible an organization, you know, a governing body in sports. I mean, they have stiff competition from FIFA and, and, <laughs> and the NCAA. I mean, you know, it's hold my beer territory. <laughs> my whole last chapter, like like my afterword yeah. of the book, is about getting into soccer because it's all refreshing and new and everything. I'm like, I'm sorry, there is nothing more corrupt and terrible than European yeah. soccer, but okay. Yeah, no, this is ghouls, ghouls all the way down. But, <laughs> but you know, I, like at the same time, and, 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 you know, like especially the, you know, the human rights back, the, the background of the human rights violations, you know, going on in China. But at the same time, I love that I can just check in and watch these ridiculous sports like snowboard cross where the people are just like tearing down the hill. And I don't remember anything from four years ago, except maybe a Wikipedia aided memory of like who won this event and some (laughs) footage. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, yeah. I always love that guy. Go. Oh yeah. And it's so it's it, it is it is the most fun I have being a sports fan. And that's the definition of casual fandom though. Yeah, it's 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 great and it's 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 so refreshing and it's a good it's a good check on, you know, the rest that I put that I put myself through and I don't really, you know, I don't get invested in in the rise and fall of a given, you know, baseball team the way I did, you know, when I was, you know, blocking for myself or or writing at prospectus when I still sort of wear the fan hat a little bit more mm-hmm. because I wasn't in press boxes. And not that I spent a lot of time in press boxes, but I just sort of I've sort of disciplined myself to be like, no, I'm you know I'm taking the objective tack here. I've got to write about all thirty teams, and you know, yeah, I have a well documented history of uh, uh, growing up rooting for the Dodgers, and then you know my adult life rooting, you know, being uh, close proximity to the Yankee dynasty, and I've written about that stuff. But you know, I, I try to, and I'm, all that stuff is out there. I'm not hiding it, but I'm I'm trying to you know I'm trying to make sure that the reader understands that I'm analyzing this stuff without cheerleading. Yeah, uh, if if you will, and 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 to me that's important. But it's just it's it's a delicate balancing act, I think, at, at times. But uh, it's interesting, and your book made me think about that stuff. There's one more thing I wanted to bring up. This you landed this book at a perfect time, I think, when some of these issues are in play, because it, right on the heels of a lockout, when you know so much of the first part of the book, you're talking about you know the way that fans are sort of trained or fall into this trap of of rooting for owners instead of players mm-hmm. and falling victim to you know the dumb you know games that or the, the games that they play you know the the public welfare of stadiums and all this stuff and you know it's interesting we've learned i think especially because of the let's call it the alternative baseball media that from which mm-hmm. we which we both occupy we've learned a lot about the inner workings of the CBA and the financials of baseball from the outside, you know, I, I, I mean, I remember going back to like baseball prospectus, Doug Pappas. Oh, yeah. Breaking down, you know, the finances of the game and, you know, talking about, you know, related party transactions and what, you know, when a team tell, tells you that, that it's losing yep. money, what, you know. Doug, com- Doug blew my mind. Yeah. What, what com- yeah. What, what complete and utter, you know, BS that was. And, you know, that that like honed our critical sensibilities on that and so now it's like you know spending you know so much of so much time you know in these exchanges between the league and the union explaining to people why you know these you know the, why the league's full of them why Bob Manfred's full of them well I, I get why fans are are the way they are as far as like tending to side on the side of owners I mean part of it's a media thing until very recently you know you only got it from affiliated media and affiliated media tends to be sourced with a team so you get the ownership right. of the story but it's also just a a rational thing and that players come and go and the team's colors and the team's uniforms and the team's history is always there so so fans tend to identify with that and players they see as transient if that guy's gone we'll get another one right. we need to protect you know the New York Yankees or the New York Mets or whatever. I, I get that and I understand it. But the the takeaway I want people to have is not just owners bad, players good. I want them to understand that owners in the leagues and the and the TV networks to some extent and, and the businesses that surround sports, they depend on that impulse from us. They depend right. on us having that irrational emotional connection that our loyalty is not going to go away no matter what we do or no matter what they do more to the to the point and that because of that because they have what they consider to be inelastic demand on our part they can get away with anything 
They use us to, you know, pry new stadium deals out of taxpayers. They use us to get tax breaks and to get, you know, various goodies and treatment that they they normally wouldn't get if they were a different kind of business. They use us in order to justify them cutting their budget down to the bone, getting rid of all the good players and tanking for four years because we're still going to be there, you know, at the other side. I want us to question that. I really want fans to realize how much of our emotion and our love for sports is what gives the sports industrial complex power. And then I want them to realize that the inherent social contract of sports, we give them our time, our attention, our money, and our loyalty and our love, and they give us at least an effort to put a good product on the field and try to win once in a while, has kind of broken down. Yeah. To the extent that's broken down, we're allowed to change our behavior. If they've pulled out of that deal, we can pull out of that deal. And we can shop our loyalty and our love and our entertainment attention and dollars elsewhere. Yeah, no, I think I, I think you've you've done a very good job of of, of laying out the case for that and uh, uh, in a very concise little package. And like I said, I I enjoyed it. I think other people will enjoy it too, especially if you're somebody who does occasionally question why the hell do I have to root for this <laughs> root, root for this team anymore with all these bums and an owner that's not trying to win. It's ultimately a self help book. That's what it was. Yeah, I, I, th- I think so. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're not being preachy about it. You're not being self-righteous about it. You know, you're explaining how you got to, th- how, how you came to these decisions, but you're, you're drawing the broader application for, for the reader to make up his or her own mind. And I think that's, that you've done a really nice job. So. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, well, congratulations on the publication of this. Rethinking Fandom from Belt Publishing. I assume that's Brandon Belt's custom imprint. Yeah, that's his, yeah, that's his, side, <laughs> that's his side hustle. Very good. All right. Well, for Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Thanks again to Craig Calcaterra, and you'll hear us again soon. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Matt Bowman and Craig Calcaterra for joining us. Rethinking Fandom is available directly from the publisher at beltpublishing.com or from your favorite bookseller. And you can read Cup of Coffee at cupofcoffee.substack.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the many things we are doing over at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. Congratulations on making it through the lockout. We did it. Happy opening day, and we'll talk to you next week.